If you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them and turn to Genesis chapter 7. While you turn there, I'll say just a few words. It is amazing when you consider your own life. I also consider my own life. And if you consider the instances of your life where somehow we convince ourselves that evil is good and good is evil. Or perhaps we just say that evil is okay. If we examine just our own thoughts and patterns, how many thoughts come across that are not just, that are not right, that are not true, that we do not say stop. Godlessness, often in our own culture, not speaking just personally, in our own culture is just seemingly normal. In our passage today, it is helpful to consider the end of godlessness, as well as the end of faith, but the, the end, where does it culminate to? Where is, the, where is the end of this road going? Our culture tells you one thing, and the Scripture tells you another. Our culture tells you to live how it pleases you, to, to deny all absolute truth, to live relatively however suits you, as surely Noah's culture would have told him. But the Lord is aware of these things, and the Lord brings them to account. And so we see that today in our passage. But before we jump into chapter 7, uh, let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll dive in. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your word. And Lord, you have given it, and we need it. And so come and remind us of the truth. Your word is truth. Come and bring our wills and our minds and hearts into conformity with what you have written. Lord, we are so often dull. And we need the word of God, which is living and active, to come and enliven our souls. So we pray, along with as we pray this morning, Lord, send forth your Holy Spirit that we might not only see the truth, but that we might love the truth. So come and illumine this word to us and glorify your Son by it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 7, and we'll read the whole chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pay careful attention to it. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will rain, send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals 
and of animals that are not clean, and of birds, and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and, his three wi- and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast, according to its kind, and all the livestock, according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, according to its kind, and every bird, according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May write truth on our hearts. Well, brothers and sisters, I have a proposition in two points uh, this evening, and you'll see them printed on your bulletin. The proposition, we need an ark of refuge. We need an ark of refuge in a corrupt world, which is chapter 6. And we need an ark of refuge in the flood of God's wrath, which is chapter 7. We need an ark of refuge in a corrupt world and in the flood of God's wrath. So let's see how Moses begins this passage. We need an ark of refuge in a corrupt world. See how he begins chapter 6, verse 9. He opens that these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Now just really quickly, as we go through big portions of Scripture, let me kind of set before you how he moves. He goes from describing Noah to describing the world, to telling you of the promise of destruction and the promise of salvation, and then showing you their fulfillment. So Noah, the world, promise, fulfillment. That's his movement in in these two chapters. And he opens with Noah. And he tells you the generations of Noah. We just saw in chapter 5 that Noah is descending from south, the godly line. And Noah not only has the right progeny, he has the substance. 
He's not only of the godly line, he himself is godly. He's not only of that line that believes in the promise, he himself has believed in that promise. He's taken refuge, as Hebrews 11 will say, a man of faith, a man who rests himself in the promise. And not only, but it goes a little step further. There's only three men in Scripture who are distinctly have this, uh, this, this statement said about them. You see the end of verse 9? It says that he's blameless in his generation, and that, in those words, Noah walked with God. Right? We just saw that, didn't we? Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. And instead of Levi, that Levi walked with God. It's in Malachi 2.6. And the culture in which Noah lived, which, what kind of culture did Noah live in? A corrupt culture. Jesus is going to refer to Noah uh, in, in, in the Gospels. And he says, uh, speaking of the second coming, he says, he says, the Son of Man will come. He said, the coming of the Son of Man will be like as the days of Noah. So will those days be. What were the days of Noah like? Full of corruption. In fact, the corruption is so full in these verses, which we'll see just in a, in, in a moment, but perhaps we can see now. You can see it. He goes five times to speak of the corruption. Verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Verse 12, behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had what? Corrupted their ways. And then, actually, in the, the, the word destroy occurs twice in verse 13 and 17, are both the same word for corruption. It's just in a different form. So they translate it a little differently. What kind of circumstances did Noah live in? He lived in terrible circumstances. Circumstances that you would not presume would actually equate to helping him be godly. Um, as a senior preaches through Luke, I, I was reminded as I was considering this point, you know, the Lord Jesus, he has both the circumstances where he was baptized, and you can imagine that he was baptized in a, in a culture that was full of revival, right, where everyone's going and being baptized, all of Judea, and all, all the countrysides are coming along and believing in, in, in the Lord and trusting in him and resting themselves in him. And then he goes from such a fruitful circumstance where, where everyone is having spiritual conversations to where? A wilderness. Right? If you're thinking, where is Noah living? He's living and walking with the Lord in the wilderness. Our lives and circumstances do not always aid us in walking with the Lord. It does not negate what we are called to do. And Noah lived in a furnace, as it were, of the faith here. And just see the furnace really quickly. I mentioned the corruption, but verses 11 and 12, he says, and let's focus in on one particular thing here. He says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Grab that phrase. And the earth was filled with violence. And notice the verb, verse 12. And God saw the earth. And behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. I want you to grab this one thing. Notice, the earth was corrupt in whose sight? In God's sight. And notice who sees the corruption of the world. And God saw the earth. Behold, it was corrupt. There's only one person's gaze who really matters. There's only one person's gaze who, in the end, 
of accounting things truly matters for you. It's the Lord's gaze. Noah, you could say, walked that Latin phrase, quorum dea, in the presence of God. While all the world before the Lord was going astray. And the word corrupt actually comes, I don't know if y'all remember, but uh, I, I was reminded that in Genesis 2, verse 7, which it's a great verse, uh, it says that the Lord formed man. And it comes, the, the word for form comes from the exact same word for the noun form of potter. And corruption actually comes uh, as a lot of the same uh, annotations. It has the analogy of a potter who throws away the, the corrupt clay. It was, it, was, it was no good, so he threw it away. And the earth is corrupt in God's sight. Right? The, the world didn't live quorum Deo. What did they live like? We had the reference this morning in Cain, right? All the world went after Cain. They, they, they followed Cain's example in Genesis 4, 16, that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and all, the, all his progeny, all the, all the following generations said, you know what, we're going to go with Cain. We're going to go away from the presence of the Lord. You can see the distinction. Noah living before the Lord and the world living away from the Lord. Now, which begs a, at least an application point or a question point. Who do you live before? Whose eyes do you long to please? Who do you want to see smile at you? The world loves the world's praise. The Apostle Paul would say, if I still please men, I'm not a servant of Christ. Who does he live for? He lives for the, the, the Lord Jesus and to please him. One theologian and just the danger of who you live for becomes evident that when you live for someone, it changes your thoughts. And one theologian says that if you sow a thought, you reap an action. And you sow an action, you reap a habit. And you sow a habit, you reap a character. And you sow a character, you reap a destiny. There is a progression that if you live to please someone, your whole life will come in conformity with that one you are trying to please. And so who do you live to please? Well, the Lord speaks to Noah. And this is just amazing. In verse 13, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, the focus of the rest of the chapter turns to Noah. You go from Noah to the, to the world situation. Noah's walking with the Lord. The world is corrupt. And then, you, then you, it turns to Noah and the Lord reveals Himself and reveals the future unto Noah. And I just want you to grab, it is amazing that God reveals the end to His people. Now, I just want you to hold fast to this thought. You know the end before it happens. 
What did that do to Noah? Noah knew the end, and it changed his life. 2 Peter 3, the Apostle Peter says, You know the end. That the world, the heavens, and the earth will be consumed as with fire from the Lord. And then he says this question, I believe it's 2 Peter 3, verse 10. What sort of people ought you to be? And notice, the Lord speaks to Noah. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end. You know how much this, this word changed Noah? You know how it shifted him? Peter in his first letter tells us that that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. You can can grasp that he was a one who, who pleaded with men and women that they would find refuge in the God who has has determined righteousness in 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 the world and has offered salvation in an ark. It is amazing that God reveals these things to us. And how little we think of them. How little we think of the end in the present. And so in verses 14 through 16, the Lord tells him to go make an ark. And Noah, as it records multiple times in this narrative, does all that God commanded him. The Lord says, I'm going to destroy everything. And Noah's response is, I believe you. And he, and he does all that he's commanded. His faith causes him to move forward, build an ark. Now, it's, it's worthy of note, and though it is a side point, it is a point, that Noah must have been extremely wealthy. This ark is huge. Did you, did you get how big it is? The ark itself is massive. It's 450 feet long. It's 75 feet wide. It's 45 feet tall. It is a vessel perhaps unlike anything in all of world history up to this point. As mentioned this morning, Cain goes and he builds a city, the first city. But what does Noah do? He goes and he builds an ark, the first ark. And the ark, three floors, but one purpose. The purpose is to deliver God's people from God's wrath and bring them into a new creation. It should sound very familiar to you. To be delivered from God's wrath and to be brought into new creation. What does the Apostle Paul say? If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Our true ark of refuge. But he goes and he builds this ark, verse 17. Verse 17. And he's like, well, why, why, why build this ark, Lord? He says, for I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life is, uh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Meaning, you need to escape the world by getting out of the world. Now, on the same scale, how do you escape 
the wrath to come? By being in someone who is in heaven? You escape the world by union, by being united to someone who is not on the earth, but is himself in heaven. So he says you need to build the ark, Noah, verse 17. Then, and then if you, re- if you read this rightly, you're like, well, is, is there hope? Because you're going to destroy everything. And the assurance of hope comes in verse 18, and it's beautiful. It just, just grab this. The first time covenant's used in your Bible, it's used 289 times in your Old Testament. And the first time is right here. Verse 18, the Lord says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. In all the promises of wrath, in verses 13 through 17, you see this promise of mercy. You see in wrath, the Lord remembering mercy and providing for His people. The first time covenant's used, and why is it used? To give no assurance. If you can imagine, if Noah was not given a promise that he himself would not be consumed, if he was not given a promise that he himself would be delivered, could you imagine how he would spend his next century? We don't know exactly how long it took him to build an ark, but perhaps around a century. And he would have been consumed by fear. Fear for himself, fear for his family, fear for his own conduct and faltering, fear of God's promise, fear that what if, what if he fall, falls straight into the world? And so when he was weak in faith, or if he got weak in faith, he would have a promise that God would not leave him and that God would be faithful to him. God, in effect, here says that here's my promise It's unable to fail. If it should fail, I will no longer be God. I will be your surety, and I will deliver you. It is amazing that we have that same promise, do we not? Noah was given a covenant wherein he was promised to be delivered from wrath, and of which the the ark was both the the, the, the type, but ultimately it was the carrier of, of, of delivering him. But we, we, have, we, have, we have a greater covenant, don't we? We have greater surety. We have that this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is spilled, the blood of the new covenant. Jesus says, I am your surety. I will pay for you, and I will bear you. And Jesus himself is the ark upon which the, the, the wrathful waters flowed that to deliver us from all of that just judgment of our God. Jesus bears us through safely to the new creation. We need an ark of refuge in a corrupt world. And we need an ark of refuge in the flood of God's wrath. See how chapter 7 begins. Chapter 7, then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. 
Now, we don't know exactly how much time, as I, as I stated, has gone by. But in verse 1, you hear the call of the Lord to Noah. And it is almost the call of a, of a father. You can just hear it. Tender. Son, you need to get away from here. Don't go near the road. Go ahead and come inside. It's about to rain. The Lord tells Noah to get into the ark. It is a great comfort that God does not allow His children to enter in when His wrath is outpoured. As a tender father, He saves him from rising dangers. God, in directing Noah, directs him to take animals. And you say, well, why is He doing that? Well, it become evident at the end of chapter 8 with the sacrifices that Noah makes to the Lord. But it's striking in verse 7, and I don't know if it stood out to you, it stood out to me in in reading this. In verse 7, the Lord speaks to Noah to go into the ark, but then He says in verse 4, sorry, chapter 7, verse 4, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And He says, seven more days. You have seven days. Only one more week. One more Sabbath to improve, to consider the things that belong to your peace. You have seven days, whereas men live centuries in your day. Noah, they're about to live seven days more and I will kill them all. You can imagine how Noah urged men in the shortness of time. His brothers and all things will come to an end for you. Seven days and you will enter into judgment with the wrath of the Lord. And the earth, which was founded upon waters, would be reversed. As the waters that it was founded upon would come back upon the world. The God who created the world would about, was coming to decreate the world. And all flesh would, worse than Jonah, go to a watery grave. And it does become evident, doesn't it? Verse 19, he says, The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. Meaning what? There was nowhere safe. No one was untouched. The totality of the world, no one could survive when it came to the wrath of God being outpoured upon this world. Yet I'm amazed in this chapter, and I know you are as well, that in everything it focuses upon, yes, wrath is evident. And it's almost as like Moses in this, he kept on coming back to Noah. And he's like, yeah, wrath is evident, but you know that the world deserves wrath. You know that sin ought to be judged. That doesn't surprise you. And it doesn't surprise you that God enters into wrath with people. But what does surprise you is look at God's grace displayed to Noah. Look at God's grace in verse 16. It says, And those that entered the ark, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and then that word, that last phrase, and, God, and the Lord 
shut him in. The Lord takes the door and He closes him. You hear the security of that. You also hear the fearfulness of that. The Lord, He protects His people from wrath. But when He closes the door, no one else enters. But the grace of God to Noah is is astounding. He shuts him in. God delivers him from the flood. He delivers his family. And our need is to be found in the ark. Isn't it? Your greatest need, my greatest need, is that we all have a few more years before we go on to be in eternity with him. And our need is not to be found with the world's approval. But our need is to be found with His approval. And how do you have His approval? Well, Hebrews 11, same place that recounts Noah, a man of faith, says that without faith it is impossible to please Him. That all who would please Him must come to Him by faith. And you say, well, faith in what, Jonas? Faith in a greater ark. Jesus is described in 1 Thessalonians, a book about the second coming, truly, in, in many ways. In 1 Thessalonians, Jesus is described in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. He says, Jesus, who saves us from the wrath to come. What a title. It's a title of a better ark than the one found in Genesis 6 and 7. Noah's ark saved them from wrath. Yes, truly eschatological and cosmic in in its breadth. But Jesus saves us from wrath eternally. He saves us from wrath in the days to come. Today, yes, we we are already not condemned. No condemnation. But the Christian will not enter into eternity and hear any other declaration than you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus has saved you from all wrath. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And whereas there was a door set in the ark, just one door, there is one door wherein we enter into the ark of safety and it's the Lord Jesus. What does he say? John 10, I am the door. Enter by me. Everyone else is a liar and a thief and a robber. You enter the fold by me, he says. And there is no other place of refuge. So brothers and sisters, in a corrupt world, in a world that is, that is bound and steadfast towards the wrath of God, you have just one greatest need. And that is to hold fast to the one who is represented in this table, the Lord Jesus. And to hold fast to the covenant He has made and the surety that He is for you and your soul. The ark cannot touch what He saves you from. It can just be a type. And Jesus is the true door. And He is the true way whereby we escape wrath and we enter into that new creation. Let's pray.